Listener discretion is advised. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, suicide, and abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. When people have severe allergic reactions, their bodies initiate an immune response to fight off the criminal allergen. Sometimes, a person's immune defenses overreact, leading to a number of dangerous symptoms such as trouble breathing and low blood pressure. In turn, they might inject themselves with epinephrine, a chemical that forces their blood vessels to constrict and the smooth muscles of the airways to relax. As a result, blood flow increases, breathing returns to normal, and their emergency is mitigated. But for a heart patient experiencing no such symptoms, a sudden shot of epinephrine is no life-saving act. On the contrary, it can be fatal. No one knew this better than Kristen Gilbert, a nurse who overdosed her patients with epinephrine. It brought her patients death, but for Kristen, injecting the stimulant brought life's biggest thrill. Inviting such chaos and tragedy may have been the only time she truly felt alive. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello again, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alistair with some medical insight into the concluding episode of Kristen Gilbert, a nurse who certainly knew the value of a good adrenaline rush. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Kristen Gilbert, a killer nurse who potentially claimed more than a hundred lives by lethal injection in the 1990s. Last week, we covered how she became a nurse, developed her knack for pathological lies, and began killing patients. Today, we'll follow Kristen's desperate attempts to lie her way out as authorities sought to bring her down. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Twenty-eight-year-old nurse Kristen Gilbert had spent her entire life telling lies. As a child, she spread untrue stories about her parents. As a teenager, she faked suicide attempts and made false accusations against boys who dumped her. In adulthood, she continued to claim, without evidence, that she was related to the infamous alleged murderer, Lizzie Borden. But there was one lie that held far more weight. Kristen insisted that she had no hand in her patient's deaths. Over the years that she worked as a nurse at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Northampton, Massachusetts, dozens of her patients died unexpectedly. Kristen only ever noted that those deaths occurred naturally. Of course, like many things Kristen said, this was categorically untrue. Her patients were not dying from natural causes. She was murdering them. Though she didn't know it, in late 1995, Kristen's days as a cold-blooded killer were numbered. Nurses had jokingly taken to calling her the angel of death that year, and many were beginning to wonder if there was a hint of truth to the grim moniker. With Kristen's record, it wasn't hard to assume the worst. Kristen coded in more medical emergencies than all of the other staff nurses combined. In fact, since she'd begun working at the hospital six years prior, Kristen was responsible for calling in 75% of her ward's codes. During each of these, Kristen alerted the staff to a patient's failing health, then watched the doctors rush in to help. It sweetened the deal for Kristen that the hospital's security guard, James Peralt, was required to be at each crisis response scene. He was her boyfriend. But even with these strange links between Kristen and the untimely deaths of so many patients, nurses were hesitant to formally accuse her of malpractice. Such claims could easily tarnish their reputations if they were believed to have slandered an innocent worker without proof. So several of Kristen's colleagues decided to search for hard evidence. They poked around the hospital for clues, 
and quickly noticed that the hospital had been going through huge amounts of epinephrine, a drug used during severe allergic reactions. Somehow, the ward had been going through a box of approximately 25 doses of epinephrine every six weeks. Epinephrine is primarily used for anaphylaxis or life-threatening allergic reactions, which are pretty rare in hospital settings. This is because allergies to medications and foods are documented in a patient's chart when they enter the hospital. This is why epinephrine is most commonly administered in emergency rooms to patients who arrive with anaphylaxis. However, it's also used in intensive care units during CPR when someone goes into cardiac arrest. This is because epinephrine increases heart rate, which Alistair mentioned earlier. Specifically, it stimulates the production of adrenaline, which increases blood flow to the heart's muscles and the brain. For a 190-bed medical center to go through this much epinephrine in such a short span of time is definitely abnormal. There'd have to be an overwhelming number of cardiac arrests and or cases of anaphylaxis for this to make any sense. 25 doses in six weeks is definitely suspicious, especially for a relatively small hospital like Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Yet, while the nurses puzzled over who was going through so much of the drug, there were no hard records being kept to report the overuse. In hushed side conversations in dark corners of the hospital, nurses proposed that perhaps it was Kristen Gilbert who had been taking the medication. They had an unsettling feeling that this was the substance she used to kill her victims. In February 1996, Nurse Kathy Ricks decided to start taking regular stock of the epinephrine. She didn't say a word to the hospital administration yet. She was still determining how much dirt she'd need to prove her case. Unfortunately, while Ricks and others pored over their strategies for handling the situation, more patients were dying. On February 6, 1996, 68-year-old World War II veteran and truck driver Edward Squira entered a substance abuse treatment center in Worcester, Massachusetts. He was suffering from a variety of health issues, including diabetes and alcohol abuse. Squira had been trying to get sober for years with no lasting success and hoped that a stay in the treatment center would help him beat his addiction for good. There was certainly hope for him. Alcoholism aside, Squira was in relatively good health. His vitals were solid and he seemed mentally sharp. The real battle he faced was beating addiction. So when he arrived at the facility on February 6th, doctors decided to keep Squira heavily medicated on painkillers and sedatives. This would ease withdrawal symptoms. With success, Squira completed a brutal week of detox. Then, on February 15th, doctors assigned Squira to the Veterans Affairs Medical Center so he could continue his recovery under medical supervision. They sent him to none other than Veterans Affairs Medical Center's Ward C. One of the nurses assigned to him, Kristen Gilbert.
Squira reported chest pain upon entry to the medical center on February 15th, so doctors placed him in the ICU as a precaution. To Squira's relief, the aching soon subsided. But he wasn't nearly out of the woods. Kristen Gilbert had just shown up for her 4 p.m. shift. As her first task of the day, she performed a full-body CT scan and chest X-ray. The tests revealed a bulge in Squira's aorta, possibly an aneurysm or tear. If Squira's bulge was in fact an aneurysm in his aorta, his life was in dire risk. An aortic aneurysm is a bulge in the wall of the aortic artery, which delivers blood from the heart to the rest of the body. Normal aortas have a circumference of less than four centimeters, and any measurement beyond indicates that an aneurysm is developing, which would require very careful monitoring. The aorta rises out of the top of the heart's left ventricle, and because its job is to pump blood to other organs, pressure in the aortic wall is more intense than in any other vessel. We typically see aortic aneurysms at this outflow point, since the pressure is strongest here as the ventricle contracts. Over time, this high-pressured blood flow can cause small tears within the arterial wall, known as aortic dissections. These dissections then start to fill the walls of this critical artery with blood and may create bulging aneurysms. Eventually, these aneurysms can balloon outward, thinning the wall and rupture, which leads to massive internal bleeding. This would cause oxygenated blood to pool in the chest cavity and prevent it from reaching vital organs. Among people who experience a ruptured aortic aneurysm outside of hospital settings, 80% of them die before getting medical attention, and during surgery, even if they're able to get help. These situations aren't necessarily death sentences, but they do require swift attention. Squira would need a corrective procedure as soon as possible. The professionals at Veterans Affairs Medical Center wasted no time transferring Squira to a larger hospital for an open-heart surgery on February 16th. But just before his plans for transfer were finalized, Kristen Gilbert called in a code from the ICU. Ed Squira was suffering from serious chest pain again. Doctors, nurses, and security officer James Peralt rushed into the ICU to tend to the suffering patient. Thinking he was experiencing a dissecting aortic aneurysm, the doctors expedited their plans to get Squira to the larger hospital. He had to go immediately. Kristen helped load Squira into the ambulance and then rode with him to the hospital. As the ambulance sped away, nurse Kathy Ricks felt that something wasn't right with Squira's emergency. When she checked the medicine cabinet, she discovered that three doses of epinephrine had been used that day. But that wasn't the worst of it. When she peered into the needle disposal bin beside Squira's old bed, she found all three used and discarded epinephrine doses. Her suspicions were confirmed. Kristen Gilbert had administered the drug to an unknowing squeerer. For someone with a heart condition, epinephrine can be extremely dangerous. This is because the adrenaline produced by the drug speeds up the autonomic nervous system, causing an increased heart and respiratory rate. 
It also activates the part of the autonomic nervous system known as the sympathetic nervous system, which creates a fight or flight response that releases a surge of energy. Ultimately, epinephrine induces an abnormally large cardiac output, which dramatically increases blood flow to the body's organs. This intensified blood delivery is dangerous for people with heart conditions, Alistair, because it severely raises blood pressure and may overwork the heart's muscles. This can result in a fatal stroke, arrhythmia, heart attack, or cardiac arrest. For a person with an aortic aneurysm like Squira, a single dose of epinephrine would be really dangerous. This is because the increased cardiac output caused by the medication would further compromise his arterial wall, causing his aneurysm to expand even more and eventually rupture. Her administration of epinephrine in this case was beyond negligence. Kristen's intent was clear by giving Squira three doses of this stimulant. Kristen's triple dose landed Squira in the Bay State Medical Center. Unfortunately, the transfer was futile. His doctors determined that in addition to the heart damage, he also had a tear in his stomach caused by the attempts to intubate him. There was nothing left to be done but administer Squira morphine to ease the pain as he died. For the next two days, Squira went in and out of consciousness, experiencing strange hallucinations. Finally, on February 18, 1996, Ed Squira died. His family never had a chance to say goodbye. Melancholy lingered through the ward as it always did after a patient's death, but this time, the staff members weren't so ready to feel pity for the attending nurse. Kristen Gilbert had gotten sloppy disposing her needles, and Kathy Ricks wasn't about to let her off the hook. When we come back, wary nurses at the VA Medical Center try to pin Kristen Gilbert down. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. In February of 1996, several nurses at the VA Medical Center in Northampton, Massachusetts, faced a major problem. They had come to realize that one of their own, a 28-year-old nurse named Kristen Gilbert, had been killing patients. On February 17, 1996, two days after Ed Squira had coded under the watchful eyes of Kristen Gilbert, three concerned nurses, including Kathy Ricks, met with their manager to discuss their suspicions. 
Above all else, the terrified staff members hoped to keep Kristen away from patients for the time being while they gathered evidence. Their manager agreed to report the situation to her superiors, but she didn't take immediate action towards Kristen Gilbert. The nurses had to devise a plan to keep Kristen's attacks at bay themselves. When Kristen arrived for her shift that day, her three colleagues asked her if she would be the charge nurse for the evening. This meant that Kristen would stay at the central desk, answering phones and doing paperwork. Kristen refused. She wanted to continue working directly with her patients. With no authority to tell her she couldn't, Kristen did as she pleased. Hours later, Kristen came rushing out of one patient's room, screaming and crying. Cradling her right arm and shoulder, Kristen claimed that the patient had attacked her, dislocating her shoulder and causing her right palm to be pricked with a needle. Several nurses sat with her as she calmed down and recounted the tale, but most were skeptical. After Kristen left to go home, the nurses further discredited Kristen's supposed attack. The patient who allegedly hurt Kristen was a frail Alzheimer's patient in his 70s. On top of that, Kristen's injury, a dislocated shoulder, was incredibly suspicious. Kristen was double-jointed and was known to pop her shoulder out as a gag in the office. The injury story didn't hold water. But most importantly, they realized that Kristen likely knew they were onto her when they requested that she be the charge nurse for the evening. Rather than come clean or do as she was asked, Kristen used a supposed attack to distract them, get out of work, and evade scrutiny. As far as theories went, it made sense. But they could only do so much about it. Luckily, the nursing manager was successful in making her superiors aware of the seriousness of the circumstances and requested a formal investigation into Kristen for the deaths of multiple patients under her watch. It was no small request. Any accusation of malpractice is incredibly serious for a hospital. Accusations of murder were unthinkable. Authorities proceeded with urgency. In the days that followed, investigators from the VA Inspector General's offices in Boston and Washington, along with state police, descended on Northampton. They didn't publicly state what they were investigating, but word had gotten out. Kristen was placed on leave, officially for medical reasons due to her dislocated shoulder. But with authorities swarming around, she could tell there was something else entirely going on. Kristen knew of only one way to get herself out of trouble. She would lie like her life depended on it. When she was interviewed by the investigators, Kristen was eager to get her side of the story out. But her accounts of events kept changing. She frequently misremembered important encounters, fudged details, or made things up entirely. In addition, her tale of being attacked by the Alzheimer's patient kept changing. Each time she told it, the debacle grew more and more unbelievable. 
She also said she didn't know the hospital stocked epinephrine, which only further discredited her. Most brazenly, Kristen claimed that she wasn't even involved in caring for most of the patients who had died on her watch. But in her heart of hearts, Kristen knew her own testimony wasn't enough. She needed to get others on her side. She took matters into her own hands, regularly asking hospital staff what the investigators were asking them. Even worse, she attempted to nudge them into remembering events in a way that exonerated her. She pushed extra hard on her boyfriend, security guard James Peralt. As a member of the hospital staff, Kristen expected Peralt to be her inside man. But Peralt wasn't the blindly loyal boyfriend she expected him to be. As staff testimony and circumstantial evidence piled up against Kristen Gilbert, investigators had enough to convene a grand jury and subpoena James Peralt. As Peralt weighed the seriousness of Kristen's allegations, he was forced to confront that he had likely been dating a serial murderer. By midsummer, Peralt tried to gently break things off with Kristen. On July 8th, he took her out to dinner and explained that he wanted to end the relationship. In line with the rest of her dating history, she did not take it well. Kristen returned to another one of her old tricks, threatening suicide. After she and Peralt returned home from dinner, Kristen marched into her bathroom and made a show of gulping down an entire handful of her migraine pills. Startled and worried, Peralt called the police. Shortly after, Kristen was brought to a psychiatric institution for evaluation. It was clear to the psychologist that Kristen was suffering from a serious disorder. Diagnosing a patient with a psychological or personality disorder can be difficult, especially when the patient is a compulsive liar like Kristen. Personality disorders manifest as chronic patterns of behaving, thinking, and feeling that deviate from social norms and compromises one's ability to function. There are 10 kinds of personality disorders, and some examples are antisocial, borderline histrionic, and schizoid behaviors. For someone to be diagnosed with anything like this, they'll undergo a medical and psychiatric evaluation. Physical exams could rule out underlying health problems that may be causing a person's psychiatric symptoms. These include things like substance abuse, endocrine disorders, malnourishment, and brain tumors. Psychiatric evaluations, on the other hand, involve analyzing patients' thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and psychosomatic complaints. Based on their assessment, a psychiatrist will depend on the DSM-5 or the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is a taxonomic and diagnostic compendium that's published by the American Psychiatric Association and identifies a patient's profile needed to identify someone's specific psychiatric disorder. However, this manual doesn't make a diagnosis foolproof, as many personality disorders have overlapping symptoms. Also, other conditions like anxiety, depression, and drug addiction can complicate a proper diagnosis. 
Identifying a specific disorder is fundamental for creating the best treatment plan. When it comes to those who manage the care of others, like Kristen, getting a precise verdict is crucial. Doctors might not have been able to establish an exact diagnosis, but they could easily determine that she was mentally afflicted. Effective treatment plans, however, remained under Kristen's discretion. It's unclear whether she actually attempted to get better, but by the looks of her worsening behavior, it seems she didn't. As the summer wore on, Kristen grew more erratic. She remained on leave from the hospital, and the odds of her ever returning grew slimmer with each passing day. In turn, Kristen continued to lash out, feeling as though her life was falling apart. Indeed, it was, in more ways than one. Though Kristen tried to repair her relationship with Perrault, it always ended the same. Kristen threatening Perrault and her subsequent hospitalization. Throughout July and August of 1996, Kristen went in and out of the hospital several times. Each time, the doctors could never tell how truthful she was being about her suicidal actions and ideations. As soon as she entered the hospital, Kristen always argued she had never tried to kill herself. Unfortunately, because of this, psychiatric hospitals were never able to hold Kristen Gilbert for very long. Generally, psychiatric hospitals can only hold an individual for 72 hours. In order to detain someone for longer, they have to present as a clear threat to their own safety or to others. This decision is ultimately made after a psychiatrist interviews the patient for possible release. In Kristen Gilbert's case, she was discharged because of her insistence that she never tried killing herself. She might also have appeared lucid, exhibiting no signs of crazed agitation. Her verbal account, coupled with her visibly normal behavior, probably put her evaluating psychiatrist in a legal chokehold. They may have suspected she was lying or modulating her behavior, but this level of suspicion wouldn't justify holding her. There are legal means by which medical facilities can hold a patient beyond the initial 72 hours, but these requirements vary by individual states. Most states actually prohibit doctors from holding medically incapacitated patients or patients whose mental states are altered by non-psychiatric factors, which are things like carbon monoxide poisoning, electrolyte imbalances, and brain tumors. However, this legal roadblock generally doesn't hold up in court if doctors are truly acting in the best interests of patient and public safety. Each time Kristen ended up in the psychiatric hospital, she only stayed for a few days before signing herself out and returning home. But the series of sad returns to such facilities hadn't been completely fruitless. They seemed to have bred a frustration in James Perrault that he could no longer silence. So, rather than watch as Kristen continued to prove a danger to herself and others, James came forward with testimony for Kristen's grand jury. In his statement, James claimed that Kristen had, at one point, confessed to killing patients. While it was a factual claim, it wasn't the hard evidence prosecutors needed to convict Kristen. They didn't realize that pretty soon, Kristen's own desperation would give her up. By the end of the summer, 
James Perrault had cut the cord with Kristen Gilbert. As far as he was concerned, his testimony against her was a testament to that. But Kristen was having none of it. She resorted to calling Perrault constantly, pleaded for him to come back, and threatened him with violence. In various instances, Kristen reverted to her adolescent behaviors and got physical. At one point, she let the air out of Perrault's car tires. Later, she smashed eggs on its hood, spray-painted its windshield, and keyed its fender. Perrault tried his best to ignore it all and move on. But Kristen Gilbert would not be ignored. Around 5 p.m. on the evening of September 26, 1996, James Perrault had just sat down at the security desk of the VA Medical Center when he received a strange phone call. An odd-sounding, deep voice on the other end had a simple message. There was a bomb in the building that would be detonated in two hours. Perrault bolted into action, alerting the head nurses and preparing to evacuate patients. While that happened, the supposed bomber called again and again to reiterate the threat. Perrault recorded the conversation and tried to ask questions, but the caller didn't respond. The voice, he realized, was pre-recorded and likely manipulated. After they evacuated as many patients as they could, the security team searched the entire building and didn't find anything suspicious. The caller had lied, and no one knew why. Four days later, the mysterious caller rang the VA Medical Center again, this time reaching a nurse at the admissions desk. The caller asked if the nurse remembered the bomb threat, then hung up. The nurse recognized the unique type of distortion used. It was the same one she'd heard in the movie Home Alone 2, in which the main character used a recorder called a talk boy to make his voice sound deeper. Thanks in part to her memory of the movie, the nurse was able to perceive the real voice underneath the distortion. Kristen Gilbert when we come back, Kristen Gilbert is forced to answer for her crimes. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. In 1996, after a summer spent trying to manipulate her ex and get revenge on the hospital that put her on permanent leave, 28-year-old Kristen Gilbert had little hope. And while investigators had been making headway toward an arrest, they were still lacking hard evidence. 
So when Kristen Gilbert called the hospital in September, authorities likely viewed it as a stroke of luck. Kristen's barely disguised voice threatening to bomb VA Medical Center was enough for police to close in on their killer. On October 1, 1996, a group of state troopers, local officers, and federal investigators converged on Kristen Gilbert's apartment. They had a warrant to search her home and car for anything related to the bomb threat calls. In what had previously been her children's bedroom closet, they found what they were looking for, a Talkboy Junior recorder. The exact same recorder that the nurse believed the mysterious caller had been using to call in the bomb threats. Kristen became apoplectic. As she had done with James Perrault, Kristen pretended to take an overdose of pills, told a friend about it, and ended up back in the psychiatric hospital. The police were incredulous. They watched vigilantly, waiting for her to make even a single mistake. They couldn't yet charge her for any of the murders at the VA Medical Center, but more than anything, they needed to protect the public from Kristen. And the bomb threat was enough to hold her on for the time being. On the afternoon of October 8th, Kristen signed herself out of the mental hospital and prepared to head home. When she stepped out of the elevator, she found herself face to face with a detective and federal marshal waiting to arrest her. She was promptly taken into police custody. After about a week had passed, in mid-October 1996, police released Kristen into her parents' custody. She was required to wear an ankle bracelet while she awaited trial. Perhaps Kristen felt like she was finally in the clear. In truth, police only ramped up their investigation in the months that followed, desperate to find something tangible to link her to the alarming rate of patient deaths. Sure enough, something tangible came. On a warm spring day, the authorities received news about Ed Squira's toxicology report. The result was startling. Not only was Squira poisoned with epinephrine, but there were also significant amounts of the drug ketamine in his system at the time of death. While before, nurses suspected Squira had been poisoned with an overdose of epinephrine, they had no idea he had also been given ketamine. Together, the two would have been a recipe for death. Ketamine is a dissociative anesthesia and puts people into a dreamlike trance state while also relieving pain and causing sedation. It's primarily used by doctors and veterinarians as an anesthetic agent for surgery, but it's also a controversial treatment that's shown some efficacy in managing severe clinical depression. Ketamine works by prohibiting the body's absorption of glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter that revs up the nervous system. It also stimulates the opioid system in the brain and thereby is used to provide pain relief. In larger doses, ketamine can dangerously arouse cardiac function by severely increasing heart rate and raising blood pressure. To give someone with a heart condition a combination of ketamine in large doses with epinephrine would cause enormous cardiovascular strain and would likely be fatal. 
The two drugs would have a synergistic or additive effect, and even in healthy people, could cause a heart attack, arrhythmia, stroke, or cardiac arrest. Finding ketamine in Squeer's autopsy report also explains the hallucinations he was having before his death, as the medication is known to have psychedelic effects. Any medical professional would have known that neither epinephrine nor ketamine would have been suitable to administer together. The discovery of these substances in Squeer's system perplexed doctors, as they had never prescribed as Squeer either of these. There wasn't even ketamine available for medical use at the VA Medical Center, where Squira had spent his final days. The only plausible explanation was that Kristen had taken Squira's treatment into her own hands. Investigators quietly stowed this knowledge as they prepared for Kristen's trial, but they wouldn't yet be able to use it. When Kristen finally had her trial in January 1998, the crimes in question were her threatening phone calls, not the murders of patients. So the prosecutors held back what they knew about the ketamine found in Squeera's blood and unveiled a differently damning piece of evidence. James Peralt had recorded one of the phone calls. When authorities sped up the recording, the real voice was revealed. It was unmistakably Kristen's. In April of 1998, jurors found Kristen Gilbert guilty of calling in a bomb threat. She was sentenced to 15 months in prison. As she served her time behind bars, investigators scrambled to find other patients who had suffered similar fates to Ed Squeera. On November 24, 1998, over two years since the investigation into Kristen Gilbert began, the U.S. Attorney's Office came forward with an announcement. Kristen was being charged with the murders of Ed Squeera, Henry Hudon, and Kenneth Cutting, along with two counts of attempted murder and several other indictments. As the case progressed, she would also be charged with the murder of Stanley Jagodowski, as well as a third attempted murder. Kristen pleaded not guilty. It took another two years for the trial to begin in November of 2000. The evidence against Kristen Gilbert hinged on the presence of large amounts of epinephrine in her victims consistent with epinephrine poisoning. Kristen's lawyers argued that the victims had all died from natural causes. A key sticking point came in the exact way each victim had died. The head of cardiology at the VA Medical Center took the stand and testified that none of them suffered from serious enough heart problems that would make death by sudden cardiac arrest logical. Their deaths, regardless of who or what was to blame, were highly abnormal. Cardiac arrest is caused by problems affecting the heart itself. In the absence of chronic heart disease or structural malformations, cardiac arrest is unlikely to be natural. Sudden cardiac arrest can occasionally happen, however, and in 20% of people who experience this, the cause isn't well understood. 
This is incredibly rare, however, and the most likely explanation here is that there were, in fact, undiagnosed cardiac rhythm abnormalities, or they had significant high blood pressure that was likely asymptomatic. For people with irregular heart rhythms or high blood pressure, cardiac arrest could potentially come from an intensely stressful or frightening situation, which would cause an abundant release of catecholamines. These are hormones secreted by the adrenal glands that stimulate your body in response to acute physical or emotional stress. Examples of catecholamines are dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. In an autopsy, it would be very hard to determine if a cardiac arrest was caused by this sudden and dramatic output of hormones. Likewise, signs of arrhythmia and high blood pressure wouldn't necessarily be visible in an autopsy, so these would likely be missed as a cause of death from cardiac arrest. Conversely, cardiac arrest caused by coronary artery disease would be something evident in a post-mortem examination. Physical abnormalities in the heart, like a diseased aortic or mitral valve, or an enlarged heart from a previous viral infection, would also be observable clues. Given the lack of serious heart problems presented by most of Kristen's victims, it's very hard to believe the defense's argument that the deaths were natural. The cardiologist testified that the deaths of Kristen Gilbert's alleged victims weren't consistent with natural cardiac death but they were consistent with epinephrine poisoning. The prosecutors also brought in character witnesses that testified to Kristen's need for attention. The roster of witnesses included Kristen's ex-husband, Glenn Gilbert. It also included James Perrault, who told the court that Kristen had once, in passing, confessed to injecting patients with a certain drug. With this testimony, the prosecution presented the narrative that Kristen loved being at the center of a medical emergency and sometimes used them to spend more time with her then-boyfriend. They also stressed that while she was only on trial for four murders, she could have been responsible for many other deaths. On March 14, 2001, nearly six years after her crimes were first uncovered, 33-year-old Kristen Gilbert was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. While the prosecutors sought the death penalty, the jury ultimately sentenced her to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Kristen was sent to serve out her sentence at the Carswell Federal Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas. She remains incarcerated there today. Kristen Gilbert didn't have a strong motive for her crimes. It seems she killed because she enjoyed the attention or because she wanted to leave work early. Kristen Gilbert likely killed for the sake of amusement and convenience, which in many ways is more disturbing than one committed by a revengeful or sadistic murderer. Often with nurses who kill, we see motives that include mercy killing, attention seeking, and payback for perceived injustices in their own lives. The through line is that these urges come from deep, intense feelings related to a sense of purpose. Kristen Gilbert, on the other hand, was a killer who lacked any profundity when it came to her murders. There was no rhyme or reason other than the possible joy she got from it and the ability to advance her own work and romantic agendas. 
Her personality disorder was manifested by how little she cared about what she was doing. She was unusually flippant about her crimes, which is pretty terrifying. She never confessed to her crimes and never offered her own explanation for the murders she committed with her syringes of epinephrine in Ward C. It'll likely never be known just how many people she killed. Throughout her life, Kristen Gilbert claimed to be related to Lizzie Borden, the famous alleged murderer born in the same town as her. And while they weren't related, Kristen did manage to form a different connection. As an angel of death, Kristen Gilbert has taken a place alongside Lizzie Borden in the grim history of murderous Massachusetts legends. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Kristen Gilbert, among the many sources we used, we found Perfect Poison, a female serial killer's deadly medicine by M. William Phelps to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trickvedortier, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.